I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll check in on the China Phase 1 deal and Trump's new decoupling threat. And Japan, Australia, and India are discussing a supply chain resiliency deal. But why isn't the U.S. involved? Plus, we'll review a new deal that may put U.S. lobsters back on the menu in Europe and a gaffe that may cost the EU Trade Commissioner his job. Stay tuned for all that and much, much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, as we start The Trade Guys today, where else would we start but China? Yes, I think it's where we ended the last episode. Yeah, I said same bat time, same bat channel. Good call. It's a perennial topic, but uh, there is actually a little news this week. Last week, we closed with some handicapping of whether the phase one deal was uh, between the United States and China would be fulfilled. I think Bill and I both agreed that there would be some room to maneuver and that there would be no claim of failure, at least, or no admission of failure. But it looks like it's better than that at this point, that there has been a reaffirmation by uh, the USTR and his counterpart. So we start with at least uh, some news that things are uh, as on track as both countries are prepared to claim. Yeah, there are reports coming out today that big soybean buys in the fall, they're estimating 40 million tons, which would be, what is it, I think 25% more than 2017. The year 2017 is sort of the benchmark for the phase one agreement. That's right. It's the baseline year for the trade deal. 10% more than the record set in 2016, exactly. according to the ag department, right? Okay, so what do we get here? Big bag of soybeans. That's what, that's what Scott, <laughs> Scott and I have been saying for six months. That's all we get out of this is we got, you know, a big bag of soybeans, which is good if you're a soybean farmer. I'm not sure about yeah. anybody else. Yeah, exactly. And right. it, it, highlights, it highlights two things we've talked about. One is... Uh, I've constantly harped on uh, quantitative measures or quantitative goals as not what you ought to be doing in trade policy. You ought to be going for uh, good commercial terms and and reciprocity. But Bill's made the point that with China, when you set a numerical goal, they tend to meet it. And that seems to be what's occurring before our eyes. The other question, of course, is, is this a normal flow of commerce? I mean, it's a fall crop. They usually buy uh, the better part of their buys are usually in the fourth quarter of the year anyway in normal times. Or is this some kind of an election gift? We've speculated in the past on uh, who the Chinese want to win the election and also who they think is going to win the election, which may be different from what they want. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they make a calculation that they think Trump's going to win, that they give him a gift. So maybe this has more meaning beyond the fact that they want to eat more soybeans. We'll see. Well, they want to feed more hogs, more more precisely. That too, yes. Yeah, but their hog production is still down, isn't it? Because yes. of the flu? That's what, that's what's surprising about the size of the order, because that's the main use for soybeans, at least the ones we export to them. Speaking of hogs, Scott, you told us before about a t-shirt that you saw at the local Piggly Wiggly, uh, your yes. undisclosed location. Well, we're now disclosing it. It's somewhere in the somewhere in the American South. In the American South, that's right. There's a wonderful grocery chain which we patronize when we come down here, which is Piggly Wiggly. And Piggly Wiggly, among other things, has a pig as a mascot. Yeah, and they have a lot of fun with their logo. 
And so you can buy logo merchandise. Oh, you man. Know, there's no Trade Guys logo merchandise yet, but there is Piggly Wiggly logo merchandise. So what was the T-shirt that you saw down there? I'm big on the pig uh, with oh. this little head on the front and its little tail on the back. I'm big on the pig in all sorts of colors, including tie-dye. So pretty remarkable. I mean, you know, look, does it get any better than that? It's marketing at its finest. Wear it when you go to barbecue, you know? Yes. <laughs> Well, look, I got to say, that's really good marketing if you're a grocery store. It's pretty impressive, and it's a great store, by the way. Wonderful people, great selection. So we're always happy to show up there. You know, with a name like Piggly Wiggly, you've got to do something. I mean, it- Yes. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't have a sense of humor with a, with a name like that. Yeah, I'll never forget when I first saw one of those stores. I had a girlfriend in Alabama in college, and uh, – when we went home to her folks' house and she said, well, we're going to stop by the Piggly Wiggly. I, I, I was, what's that? <laughs> they do a fine job. They're still in business and it's a wonderful part of this part of the country. So glad to patronize. If this was a story well, from Andrew's college days, they've been in business a long time. <laughs> uh, yeah, th- there you go. That's right. Man, it gets tough here on the trade, guys. <laughs> tough crowd. Speaking of tough crowd, You guys got to help me understand this. President Trump on Sunday in an interview on Fox News said that we could decouple and not do business with China. He said to Steve Hilton that we don't have to do business with them. And he said something, if they don't treat us right, he would certainly do that, meaning that we don't have to do business with them in Trump speak. So what does that mean? Do his trade advisors agree with him? while we're on the phone with them doing phase one trade deals. Is this just a throwaway line? What is it? To my mind, it was principally a talking point. It certainly is is well within sort of the president's brand character on these issues. But it's uh, like most talking points, misses the nuance and subtlety. Keep in mind that a lot of the economic engagement between the United States and China comes from American companies who have operations in China doing business to serve the Chinese consumer. So there is some long-haul trade where we're buying ingredients or materials, and the U.S. imports them and processes them further. That's still an important component. Some of those have availability elsewhere in the world, some not. Some could be made available elsewhere in the world with gigantic investments in resources or capital. So it's not theoretically impossible, but it's a vast oversimplification of of the subtlety of the relationship and the complexity. I think the more likely outcome is that we'll be what our friend uh, J.P. Morgan, Joyce Chang, calls coopetition. There'll be things we cooperate on. There'll be places where we compete. So there will be elements of decoupling. But to make a blanket statement that if you're the biggest economy in the world, they're number two, or depending on how you measure, it's vice versa. Two large economies are not going to decouple completely without great disruption and a, a lot of time to execute and plan. So I think that's where we stand. That's the realistic view, and I think he's right about how it'll turn out, but I'm not sure that's what the government's policy is going to be, because the government's policy in this administration isn't isn't always entirely tethered to reality. The Republicans don't have a platform this this year, and apparently they're proud of it, but they did produce- Well, no, uh, the platform is support Trump. Well, yeah, but they don't- (laughs) That's the shortest platform in the history of the country. They did manage to put out a list of 50 things that he's going to do if he's reelected. And there's a section that addresses this issue. And it's it's interesting because it really, I don't think it uses the word decoupling, but 
It's a program of carrots and sticks. Carrots for companies that come back to the United States and sticks for companies that don't. So it's saying we're going to put in uh, tax credits to help you build your manufacturing plants here, tax credits if you come back, and exclusion from federal procurement if you stay there. So what he's saying is if reelected, I'm going to embark on a policy of promoting decoupling. Now, I don't think it's going to get very far for the reasons that Scott said, but I think that that's going to be the policy. And it, it's, it's interesting because it's a policy that at least implicitly acknowledges the failure of the policies he's pursued for the last three years. I mean, if you recall, he was going to take on China and he was going to force them to shape up. And they, USTR identified all these problems and said, we're going to have this negotiation and we're going to fix all that. And what we just got done talking about is what he's ended up with is a big bag of soybeans and all those problems postponed to phase two, which has more or less disappeared. And if you look at what passes for their platform, there isn't any talk there about phase two. What they're talking about is decoupling. So essentially, they're admitting, which I think is actually realistic, you know, the Chinese are not going to do what Trump wants. And his response to that is to say, all right, we're going to separate which I think is not likely to be as successful a strategy as he thinks, exactly for the reasons Scott said. Well, is he more likely to continue to blast and threaten China, or what's the best strategy going forward? Well, look, I think at least during the remainder of the presidential campaign, you have two meta-themes, and you've seen it play out in the conventions. Meta-theme from last week, the Democrats, is it's all Trump's fault, Okay. Now, the contrary meta theme that the Trump uh, campaign has, it's, it's all China's fault. So take your pick. And uh, so that meta theme is going to carry over and China will, will remain a target for the president. But I think then what happens, let's presume for a moment that he's reelected. All right. The second term of the Trump administration with regard to China policy won't change a lot in terms of rhetoric. Uh, there'll still be pressure on trade. There'll still be pressure on human rights. There'll still be pressure for some acknowledgement of what happened with COVID and what might happen differently for the next pathogen or the next uh, infectious disease that, that originates in Asia. So the, the, some of those things will remain the same. Some trends will remain the same. Keep in mind, there's a global trend away from long-haul globalization toward re more regional production networks. That trend will continue, including that trend in North America where manufacturers and producers want to be close to the consumer. The cost advantages of long-haul globalization are not what they once were. And so there's, there's lots of pressures on that. So I think what you have is a no real change in the fundamental orientation of Trump administration policy toward China. But he's put himself in a position now to take credit for some of the underlying things that are probably going to happen anyway and call it a manufacturing renaissance in the United States. And and look, the use of incentives to get manufacturers to locate someplace is not unheard of. It's quite popular, particularly on a state and local level here in the United States. So that will continue and will be something that the administration will likely pay closer attention to, rather than, as Bill suggests, some phase two deal that they'll disappoint on. Well, should we expect China to make additional concessions to keep Trump happy? Well, I, th I think if they think he's going to win the election, they might do something beforehand, give him a boost, figure it'll make their life a little easier afterwards. But if they think he's going to lose, I don't see them doing anything in the short run. I also don't see them ever doing anything on any of the significant issues that we've identified, the so-called structural issues. You know, we've talked about this. We are asking them 
to become a market economy, which would undermine the party's control of, of the state. And they're not going to do that. It doesn't matter who's asking. Biden's not going to have any more success, I don't think, than Trump's going to have. And eventually, you know, whoever wins is going to recognize that and is going to have to adopt a different policy. It looks like Trump may be recognizing it now and is heading towards decoupling. I think what Biden is more likely to do is go back to what we've also discussed before and focus more on how to make us more competitive, recognizing that we're going to have to deal with them in third markets and we're going to have to take them on. And he's going to be much more focused on running faster than he is on decoupling. All right. Well, so we're going to have to talk about China next week, too. So, you know, and the week after and the week after. Regrettably, this will be a continuing topic for the trade guys. So we'll come back to that. But I want to ask you all this. Japan, India and Australia are seeking a supply chain pact. And this is ostensibly to build stronger supply chains to counter China's dominance in the region. What about this pact and what does it mean for the U.S.? Well, I find it interesting because Japan was going in that direction anyway. Every one of the advanced industrial democracies is looking at supply chain resilience in a way that they didn't look at it. It wasn't precisely the same problem prior to COVID as it is post-COVID. And uh, one of the things that's been revealed is that, first of all, in most industrial democracies, there's the political space to pursue these issues from voters. So I think that's positive is that because many of the projects that lead to solution, real solutions and supply chain resilience come at a higher cost. Uh, but also there's an element here, uh, two elements that I, I find interesting. One is the notion of China as reliable supplier is under question. So that's a major branding problem for China, uh, and it may affect things or may not. And it depends on how a lot of things play out. So hard to make a prediction at this point. The second element that I find interesting is India being a part of this. Uh, certainly India does have some important export businesses that affect countries like Japan and, and Australia, mostly in pharmaceutical precursors. There's some very competent generic drug manufacturers in India who really are the world's pharmacy. If you look at the way pharmaceutical products are sold outside the United States. Uh, so they do have capable industries in this sector. They're not an export powerhouse in many sectors, mostly because of the way they sort of refuse to open their market and engage with the world over the last 30 years or so. So India is not a part of a lot of global supply networks. But the notion of using the post-pandemic politics to enhance cooperation with a multi-party democracy like India is quite an interesting development. I I don't know if they'll succeed or not. I don't know how many sectors this will cover beyond uh, the places where there's already capability in India, uh, but we'll see how it goes. It's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Uh, good idea. Won't happen. I think it's very hard for me to see the Indians making a genuine contribution to something. You know, there have been efforts to develop regional arrangements before RCEP, the Regional Cooperative Economic Program, which is actually making strides uh, toward a, a much less a ambitious agreement than TPP would have been or than CPTPP is. But India pulled out. They weren't even willing to make the modest uh, commitments that that called for. I mean, if they're interested in a in some kind of supply chain association, I can imagine it's only because they think it's going to result in Japanese manufacturers located in India. And I'm not sure that's exactly what the Japanese have in mind. 
We'll see, but I'm, I wouldn't be optimistic about getting off the ground. The idea of doing something that presents a united, viable alternative to China is a very good idea. That's what TPP was supposed to be. And of course, the salient fact about both TPP or CPTPP and this new idea is, you know, who's missing? The United States. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask. Why are we not involved in these discussions? Because we have a president who doesn't believe in that stuff. It's inconsistent with the Trump administration policy. Same reason that we killed TPP in the crib on the third day or second day of the administration. So having said that, Bill's right to, to point out that this is a problem worth solving. East Asia and the Indo-Pacific is already more than half the world's people. It's on its way to being the lion's share, maybe 70% of the world's middle class. So this is a very important market over the next say, 10 to 25 years. And how that market is supplied is very important to U.S. producers, to multinational companies. And the role of India and China in that dynamic is something that everybody's trying to find a solution. We've got about six or seven partial solutions from APEC to TPP to uh, RCEP to this initiative. Uh, and there, there are several more as well, different cooperation initiatives. Uh, and nobody's really gotten the tumblers all to click yet. But this is going to be a problem that we ought to be involved in finding the solution. We're not at this point because of the policy choices of our administration. But it doesn't mean it's not important. Yeah. How can we afford to stay out of these discussions? Well, look, I, I think what will happen is companies, particularly American companies who have business interests in the region, will find a way to be very pragmatic about this. This is not the first time that the U.S. has sort of stopped negotiating trade agreements Trade promotion authority has expired a couple of times. Agreements take a very long time to complete when you're negotiating with the U.S. So there's kind of an approach that I'd characterize as take any kind of agreements and try to make them work in our networks rather than wait for U.S. government leadership in these situations. Now, that's not to underestimate the importance of longtime uh, U.S. participation in forums like APEC. But there's only so much you can do. And what will happen is none of the administration's policies are going to diminish the interest that American headquartered companies have in the Indo-Pacific. And you just, if you can't solve the problem with process A, you look to B or C or D or X to get where you need to get. Well, you know, I mean, smart companies will climb aboard the train. The sad thing about it is with U.S. leadership, it could be bigger, more significant um, and a more effective counterweight to China. And so it's another opportunity missed. Okay. Now, I got to ask you guys about lobsters. President Trump won a European Union pledge to end tariffs on American lobsters as part of a deal that may help him and a Republican senator in a political state that's hammered by a U.S. trade war with China. So tell us about the lobster deal. This is Susan Collins we're talking about, of course. Yeah, she's getting the credit. Actually, it was funny. If you listen to the deputy U.S. trade representative Mahoney, he gave all the credit not only to Susan Collins, who's actually running, but to the former governor who retired after two terms is not running, at least not right now, and to a defeated Republican congressman who's also uh, not in office. So if you listen to them, it was the main Republicans that did this whole thing. And I was just having a conversation with a journalist about this who, who sort of asked the question, aren't all of Trump's trade policies political in the sense that they're designed to help somebody? And I couldn't help but think, isn't, isn't that true of everybody's trade policy? 
But I guess it yeah. does help the lobstermen. I mean, the thing that annoys me, I guess, or is amusing is that while Trump is going to take a lot of credit for this, he ignores completely the fact that this whole thing was his fault to begin with. Well, that's precisely it. Look, this was something that was not broken when he entered office. In fact, the Maine Lobstermen Association had developed for years a very strong relationship with restaurants and food service operations in China. They worked so hard to build a business, build a market for Maine lobsters in China that takes years of work, and they put it in. And they had a wonderful relationship with their customers in China. Let's set aside the Chinese government. But when President Trump came into office and put on the cape and became tariff man. With his deputy, uh, Peter Navarro, the lobster king. The lobster king. They decided to pick fights with people who were customers of the main lobster industry. And the customers did the wise thing, which is they didn't want to take lobster off the menu. So they bought Canadian lobsters. And it turns out Canadian lobsters swim in the same part of the Atlantic Ocean that Maine lobsters do. Oddly enough, mm -hmm. it's a mystery of geography, but somehow the lobsters themselves are not nearly as nationalistic as some no, of the people. But the Canadian lobsters are rumored to be much nicer than the American lobsters. Well, so. sure. They're, they're definitely more <laughs> polite. They, <laughs> oh, come on. Mainers are so nice. They are. They're nice people. But look, this was damage created by the president's policies in the early days. And so now we're fixing things that weren't broken but are now broken. And yeah, but we're fixing them to badly mix a metaphor, but I can't resist. This is sort of bull in the China shop policy. The president comes in, he breaks everything, and then he says to Lighthizer, go fix it one plate at a time. So, you know, he fixed lobsters and got it back to maybe what it, what it used to be, one plate, tiny little element of trade. You still got all the other China lying all over the floor that's still broken. And is anybody in China eating lobsters or, or what's the deal? Well, well, lobsters are still on the menu, as I understand it. I mean, but they're not always Maine lobsters. And this puts Maine lobsters on the menu in Europe with any luck, if it actually works. But it's certainly, uh, it's timing. But it, look, Bill's right about breaking all the China and then fixing it one plate at a time. That seems to be our policy at the moment, which at least contains an acknowledgement that breaking it in the first place wasn't that bright. But I'm not expecting any revelations in that respect anytime soon. But look, these are accommodations that will have to be made. And Bill's also right about the politics. The fact that former Maine Senator George Mitchell was Senate Majority Leader during the conclusion of the Uruguay round uh, had a lot to do with footwear tariffs, you know, but that were finally negotiated there. And so trade policy always reflects political realities to a greater or lesser extent. Finally, it wouldn't be the trade guys if we didn't talk about Golfgate. What is Golfgate and why are we talking about Golfgate? So this is EU Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan, no relation to Ben Hogan, I'm assuming. <laughs> What's the deal with Golfgate, guys? This is just downright peculiar. In the American context, this is peculiar because this would be just another day here in the United States if you look at all the things that Trump has done. What Hogan did, Hogan is the EU's trade commissioner. So he's Irish. He doesn't work for the Irish government. He works for the commission. But he attended a, a dinner, a golf dinner in Ireland, which apparently violated the Irish government's rules about the number of people who could gather together and wearing masks and all those things. And to top it off, he was apparently also stopped by the Irish police on the way there for uh, talking on his cell phone while he was driving, which is a violation in, in Ireland, as it is in certainly where I am and a lot of places. So he's sort of in small trouble, not John Lewis trouble, not good trouble, but small trouble. And some members of the Irish government who attended the same dinner 
resigned. And the Irish senior official suggested that maybe Hogan should do that. They can't fire him because he doesn't work for them. The head of the, the president of the commission, Ursula von der Leyen, asked him to submit a report explaining in detail what he had done. And I thought this was going to pass over because from an American perspective, you know, it's silly, but big deal. From a European perspective, this is a big deal. And the rumor from European reporters is he's going to resign over this. It's one of these moments where you realize that hypocrisy isn't tolerated everywhere, all right? And I think that it may be a post-COVID response, but I think voters are less tolerant of politicians who set one standard for themselves and another standard for those who are the governed. And I know there's a good deal of sensitivity about that in the U.S. that hasn't bubbled up, at least at the national level so far. You know, I think Americans view politicians as born hypocrites. And if it weren't for double standards, they'd have no standards at all. But it's not surprising to me that there's first less tolerance for that kind of actions outside the United States. But they're also, I'm, what I'm watching is whether this is going to become a pattern post-COVID that officials have to behave in a way that they expect their constituents to behave. It would be a nice improvement, frankly, from my point of view. Well, we'll have to see what happens with Golfgate. It won't be coming to our shores, that's for sure. But nice connection with Ben Hogan. Yeah. He's the second greatest golfer named Hogan. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Trey, guys. Well, it has been a pleasure as always. Thank you for your insights. We'll be back next week and talk about China and many, many other things right here on this same bat time, same bat channel, same trade, guys. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.